I have this really, really vivid memory uh, of this moment shortly. I, I'm pretty sure it was shortly after Amy and I were married, uh, but it's about to be 17 years, so some of that timeline gets a little bit you know, foggy back there, but I'm pretty sure it was right after we were married or shortly after, maybe a year or two. Um, and to set this up, when I was about in middle school, I'm pretty sure, I started to play guitar. Uh, and all cards on the table, I completely started playing guitar to try to get a girlfriend. That's 100% why I thought, let me play guitar. Uh, and so that continued on, the playing of the guitar, through high school and into college. And by the time I was in high school, Amy was my girlfriend, so I guess it worked out. Um, and we're married now. So um, about a decade of my life, um, after my actually... Uh, after the kind of real serious part of like the main part of my life that was spent playing sports was kind of done, um, kind of late high school, I started to play guitar a little more serious. And about a decade of my life, late high school into college, uh, was spent um, being a musician and doing all the things that it means to be a musician uh, on a small scale. Now, back then, the scene of music was a little different. There was more concerts happening, uh, it seems like to me. But um, I spent about a decade uh, doing all of those things. And if you've ever played an instrument, you know that what really brings most of the meaning, and this is true for sports actually too, but what really brings most of the meaning and fun to being a musician um, on top of the playing of the music, which is pretty fun, is actually the camaraderie that happens when you play with other people, uh, especially if you're like in a band like I was consistently. You play with the same group of, for me, guys, very consistently, uh, and that even now is the main thing I like about being a musician, even here in the church. It's like I get this friendship with these people that I play music with, and there's a connection with other people that comes from that that's really fun and it's really amazing. So back to me in uh, young college or older high school, I played music in a number of different settings, but the one that meant the most to me was a band that I, that I was in that actually started as a band in youth group. Uh, that's my kind of background. That's my trajectory in life. And so we were very, very young, and we started leading music in our home church. Our home church went through kind of a difficult time where some of the adult musicians were gone, and so we got put into big church, uh, and we were leading music in services just like this one. Uh, we started, we were all in very early high school. Some of us were even in late middle school. Um, and so the core of us that stayed together, we spent hundreds, probably thousands of hours together over those years rehearsing, learning songs, eating meals together, driving, traveling around, lifting heavy stuff, sweating, you know, all that stuff that you do together, uh, if you've ever experienced that, and eventually writing our own music, recording some of it. Uh, and so those were some of the best times of my life up to that point in my life. And even now, that's some of my, my most treasured memories, right? Uh, some of you probably have memories like that from when you were in that around 20-ish age, right? Those awesome memories you look back on, you completely romanticize and don't remember the bad stuff, but, right? So back to then the moment or year, I, I, I was married uh, for a year or two, a little bit in the future, right? Amy and I are in our little apartment. We're really, really low on cash, like just barely uh, had enough money. I think I was delivering pizza at the time, so our money was literally whatever cash was in the envelope from tips. Uh, and at that time, I wasn't playing music in the way that I had been, and so we began to have the conversation about, hey, you've got all this really expensive musical gear. We don't have money. Maybe we should sell some of it, right? Those of you that are musicians, I can see the knife in your heart right now, <laughs> right? And so understand that for a guitar player, his amps, his pedals, right? I, I do have some of my gear still today, um, but I had a lot more back then, um, 
And, and so that stuff kind of becomes like who, part of who you are as a guitar player, and you really get your identity wrapped up in that. And so I really was struggling with this idea of letting go of some of this stuff. And it, and it, it wasn't just about the stuff, right? I, I remember just being hit with that. It felt like just a wall of grief, just kind of, I, I cried, like, and I was like, what is, I was like both sad and crying, and then like, am I crying over guitar equipment? What's happening right now, right? I was confused, but it might sound silly, but I, I bet if you're past your 20s in life, this has happened at least once, right, over something, that you look back on fondly. And if you're not past your 20s, you're living in the times right now that you're probably gonna look back on and shed tears over one day. And so the reason for my tears in that moment was not really so much about the actual equipment that was needing to be sold, although it was a little bit, but it was really about all of the memories that I associated with those physical things, right? All all the memories I associated with those, all the times of hard work, all the joy that came from being with my friends, becoming better at something together, achieving uh, a goal together, all the times of the shared joy of writing songs together, being asked to come and play music in new places. Um, And as I sat there and looked at my, in in that apartment, I could still see it. I'm looking at a pedal board kind of like this, but with a lot more pedals on it uh, and, and some guitars. I remember those days and I wanted them back in that moment. That's what the tears were about, right? But I grieved because those days were gone. And by that point, all of us had gotten married. Some of us had gone off to college, gotten real jobs. And so there were going to be no more days like the days that had passed, And that's what the grief was about. Now, another example of this is when we lose a loved one and the family gathers together, right? What do they do? What what do we do when somebody dies? We get together with our family and immediately we start telling stories about that person. That's what it is. Every funeral I've ever helped the family uh, officiate and been with, that's what almost all the conversations are. And when you're in that role, one of the things you have to try to do is if you're meeting with the family to plan a funeral, you have to kind of help manage that and go, guys, I just need 10 minutes where we can talk about this right now. And then you can tell stories as soon as we're done with that, right? Because that's what we want to do. We even bring that into the funeral itself. At the funeral, we might have a few family members, close friends, share their most cherished memories of that person's life. And so in today's text in Lamentations 2, The second lament, you might remember from last week, there are five laments in the book of of Lamentations written by uh, most likely the prophet Jeremiah. Today's second lament retells many of the same events as the first lament in chapter one. But what we see is that there is something really healthy about this retelling. The experiences of grief that I talked about a moment ago really illustrate this point for us. And I I wanna hopefully leave this with you today. Healing comes through memory. It comes through not forgetfulness, but remembering what has happened. And a vital part of the grieving process is honestly just confronting what has been lost. That's a big part of grief, is naming that loss, right? This was, if you were with us during COVID and you remember meeting under the tree in the par- by the parsonage, this was a huge part of the societal damage that happened to us during COVID, Right. If, if you were with us during that time, uh, you remember Jimler and I leading music under the tree. That was fun times. Um, you might remember that we took a Sunday during that time. Uh, I remember it was hot, so it must have been the summer. Uh, but we talked about what is known as ambiguous loss for a whole Sunday. 
Uh, this is the kind of loss where there isn't clarity about when the loss is over or what was even lost, right? I remember during that time, uh, Journey, my older daughter, uh, went to kindergarten or should have gone to kindergarten that year and we didn't get kindergarten, right? And so that's a little loss. And if you don't name it, what happens is it kind of lingers. And, and so we all went through that. And what made it so hard is that many of us weren't able to really name the loss and grieve for it. And many of us just got kind of stuck in the sorrow. And that is uh, what this second lament deals with. I was thinking about other examples of this. And just this last Christmas season, I remember seeing a bunch of, you probably see these too, but like, I follow like Christmas accounts on like Instagram because I really like Christmas and it like posts nostalgia. And one of the things that a lot of people are posting about is like the mall in the 90s for Christmas time, right? And it was like, that was still pretty much happening and then COVID happened. And now it's like, I don't think I've been to the mall in like nine months. It's just weird. And I'm not saying that's like a grievous loss, but it's those kind of things Uh, on a bigger scale that this second lament is dealing with. See, the second lament here in Lamentations deals with this particular kind of sorrow, which is the sorrow that comes from remembering days that are no more. That's a particular kind of sorrow. You remember the happy times and they're not here now. And you're like, man, I just wish I could go back. Right? As Jeremiah lamented over the past that he knew was never coming back. He wrote these words for us, and um, I think he would have recognized this truth. This is a line uh, from the poetry of Alfred Lord Tennyson. Uh, It says this, a sorrow's crown of sorrow is remembering happier things. So let's just walk through this text piece by piece, and it'll basically just be us reading the scripture, and then I'll just intersperse some thoughts in between these verses. And I'm just going to tell you right up front, it's pretty dark. Uh, Lamentations as a whole is, but today's is pretty dark. Here's where I want to start. Chapter 2. The city of Jerusalem um, seemed to have lost everything. She had lost the temple. And what's significant about this is that the loss of the temple means for them the loss of the place where they would meet with God and make sacrifices for sin. Listen to the scriptures. I'm going to read kind of selected verses, so you can follow along. Uh, If you can, do your best. How the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion with the cloud of his anger. He has hurled down the splendor of Israel from heaven to earth. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. He has laid waste his dwelling like a garden. He has destroyed the place of meeting. The Lord has made Zion forget her appointed feasts and her Sabbaths. In his fierce anger, he has spurned both king and priest. The Lord has rejected his altar and abandoned his sanctuary. And so the picture of the destruction, it continues here, right? Houses, palaces, the city's defenses, all of it gone. Without pity, the Lord has swallowed up the dwellings of Jacob. In his wrath, he has torn down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought her kingdom and its princes down to the ground in dishonor. In fierce anger, he has cut off every horn of Israel. 
He has withdrawn his right hand at the approach of the enemy. He has burned in Jacob like a flaming fire that consumes everything around it. He has swallowed up all her palaces and destroyed her strongholds. He has multiplied mourning and lamentation for the daughter of Judah. He has handed over to the enemy the walls of her palaces. They have raised a shout in the house of the Lord as on the day of an appointed feast. The Lord determined to tear down the wall around the daughter of Zion. He stretched out a measuring line and did not withhold his hand from destroying he made ramparts the wall and walls lament together they wasted away her gates have sunk into the ground their bars he has broken and destroyed now we i don't have any experience of god like this in my personal life right i have no experience of this kind of wrath from god showing up in my life the city had lost not only its sort of physical appearance and structure, but it had also lost leadership. It had lost political leaders, spiritual leaders. The end of verse nine says, her king and her princes are exiled among the nations. The law is no more and her prophets no longer find vision from the Lord. So imagine um, another country comes and takes over, destroys everything and takes everyone who's been in leadership away. That's what's happening here, Right? We see that as far as the prophets are concerned, it was probably fine, really, that they were uh, that that they that this was happening because they had really stopped speaking for God. This is what uh, this goes back into the book of Jeremiah, where it says this in, in chapter twenty-three: the visions of your prophets were false and worthless; they did not expose your sin to ward off your captivity. Now, understand what just was said there. Prophets were worthless because they didn't expose the sin of the people, right? They weren't doing their job. The oracles they gave, they gave you were false and misleading, right? Not good. But the loss of their king, King Jehoiachin, um, Jehoiakim, was catastrophic because at the time when it happened, Um, they would have seen this as the marking of the end of the house of David and the end of God's promise. And and so this was devastating. Jerusalem as a city had also lost her dignity. You might remember last week we looked at a picture uh, of a a statue that was carved that was a personification of Jerusalem. It says that she was scorned by the nations. She was no longer seen as like a city on a hill or a light among the nations. She's scorned. Verses 15 and 16 say, all who pass your way, clap their hands at you. This is a, uh, a, a physical way of expressing uh, dishonor, right? They scoff and they shake their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth? That's sarcasm, right? All your enemies open their mouths wide against you. They scoff and gnash their teeth and say, we have swallowed her up. This is the day we have waited for. We have lived to see it. Now, it's one thing for your enemies to say something about you under their breath as they walk away, right? That's bad enough. It's another thing for them to say it right in your face. And that's what's happening here. Worst of all was the effect that this invasion by the Babylonians had on the people of the city in particular, as is always the case in times of trauma, it's particularly bad for the women and the children. So what had happened to them was so shocking, so devastating that nobody had any words to speak about it. They, they didn't know what to say. All they could do was just get into a posture of lamentation. Verse 10, the elders 
of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have sprinkled dust on their heads. They have put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. The writer of Lamentations is also uh, so devastated by what he sees that he joins in the morning. He says, my eyes fail from weeping. I wonder if you've cried like that where you're, you can't see, right? You got so much tears and snot and whatever else going on that you just can't see. You can't breathe. That's what's happening here. I am in torment within. My heart is poured out on the ground because my people are destroyed. He loves his people, but we're not done yet. What the people of Jerusalem had witnessed was actually an appalling loss of life. When we see pictures on the news that we're seeing from the different places that are in war right now, um, there's an appalling loss of life, right? And we, we're shocked when we see it on TV and on video and online because we don't see that kind of thing. And that's what's happening to them, but in person. And that continues on, right? I, it, it's good to put this into perspective. If, I mean, in my lifetime, there's never been war anywhere near close, right? Nobody that I know has ever like been in a war or, or anything like that unless they're far older than me in age. And so there's this separation, and so some, sometimes what we don't think about is when there is this huge loss of life that happens in a battle, there's tomorrow. And what's going to happen is there's no food now. Where are people going to get something to eat? And so the loss of life, yes, it's immediate, but then it continues on. And, that, and that's what he's talking about here. He says this, children and infants faint in the streets of the city. They're starving to death. They're dehydrated, right? Kids are walking around the streets with no parents because they're dead and they have no food. They say to their mothers, the ones that have mothers, they say to their mothers, where is bread and wine? Where is sustenance? As they faint like wounded men in the streets of the city. And this line is just haunting. As their lives ebb away in their mother's arms. Ooh, right? haunting, haunting line. I don't think there's a more haunting and grieving picture of loss than that line of children ebbing away in their mother's arms. But what was amazing about these losses is that somehow we have to grapple with the reality that this is God's doing. And this is hard, right? Again, as we saw last week, this stuff is the result of the sin of God's people, of Judah's sin, but the reality still has to be faced that in some way God has turned against his own people. This is a picture of what it looks like when the opposite of the benediction that I speak over us each week comes to pass. When God does not bless you or keep you, when he doesn't make his face to shine on you, when he isn't gracious to you, when he turns his face away from you and does not bring you peace. This is a hard reality for, I don't like this either, right? Even now, I, as I'm speaking these words, having studied and been like, I'm pretty sure this is right, I don't like it. I don't like it. It's a hard reality. Because of the fall of Adam and Eve and the entrance of, the, of sin into the world, the world we live in is not just neutral when it comes to humanity. If God does not continuously hold back sin and death and turn his face towards us, make the sun shine on the righteous and the unrighteous alike, 
What we are reading here is more of the reality of the world because of the sin of humanity. The world is not just neutral. And there is a point at which God in his holiness will not just continue to allow his people to walk in sin with no consequence. And this is the bitter, bitter pill that this book is describing, right? I am not a good dad if I let my kids just do whatever they want all the time. And there comes a line, they're little right now, and I know it's going to get harder when they're teenagers, Lord help me. They're little right now, but even now, especially the younger ones, she likes to test that line. And there's only so many times when you can say, if you do that again, this is going to be the consequence. And then they do it again, and you're like, okay, here it is. And then, as a parent, your heart breaks because you see the consequence that you had to bring into their life for their own good. And and this is what's happening here. God had not simply allowed his own city to to be defeated. He had helped to destroy it. God had used the Babylonians to do the destroying, right? Of course. But he is still the cause of the affliction we see in Lamentations. And it's just, it's difficult to get our heads around it. Like an enemy, verse four, he has strung his bow, his right hand is ready. Like a foe, he has slain all who were pleasing to the eye. He has poured out his wrath like fire on the tent of the daughter of Zion. The Lord is like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. Now, if you read the Old Testament, you will see one of the running pictures we see in the Old Testament is of God as a warrior. This is a picture we see of God in the Old Testament. He's a warrior. Almost all the time, he's a warrior fighting on behalf of his people, right? And we, a lot, that's in music a lot right now, that God's fighting for us and we have a battle, right? You see that theme a lot. Well, what's, there's a really strange and haunting twist here on that Old Testament motif of the divine warrior, because in this place in Lamentations, God is not fighting for his people. He's actually fighting against them which is scary. This is also part of the grief here. There is grief and pain that comes when we look back on life as it had been before we walked down the long road of rebellion and we say to ourselves, why didn't I just listen to God? Why didn't I just listen? I did this to myself and I really did not have to, right? That, that might be the most Ah, right? There's not even words for it, just noises. See, because if the people had listened to Jeremiah, they would not have been surprised to figure out that God became their enemy. That the prophet had told them over and over and over and over that if they kept walking on the path they were on of sin and rebellion, judgment would come. And when judgment finally came, this is what Jeremiah the prophet said, the Lord has done what he planned. He has fulfilled his word, which he decreed long ago. He has overthrown you without pity. He has let the enemy gloat over you. He has exalted the horn of your foes. So the reality that we have to deal with here is that the sufferings of Jerusalem were somehow part of God's decree. And listen, I believe in God's sovereignty and I think there is no darkness in him at all. And so I'm like, I don't fully know how to make these things work together. 
but I lean not on my own understanding. I trust in God's word, and here it is, right? Not only the big picture eternal decree of his divine will, but also the decree that God issued through the prophet Jeremiah. And so since it was within that decree, the fall of Jerusalem actually reveals to us many of the perfections of God's character. This was an act of divine justice. It's intended for multiple reasons to punish a wayward people for their rebellion, yes. And yet at the same time, and I hope you hear this part, it's also an act of divine love intended to discipline God's people in order to turn them away from their sin. Their hand had gotten gripped onto their sin and in order to save them, God had to come and break their hand so they would let go, right? Through these sufferings of defeat and exile, God's people finally learn not to place their confidence in kings or in temples and for us or in political systems or political leaders, but only in God himself. Now, Suffering and hardship can and often does play a very important role in the life of a Christian. We are not exempt. Suffering is one of the benefits, and hear that, it is one of the benefits of belonging to God by adoption in Jesus Christ. My kids have no idea, but they are being blessed by my wife and I because of God because they're adopted into my family and I will give them consequences, right? (laughs) They don't understand that that's a blessing, but it actually is. I would just encourage you to meet somebody who did not have consequences in their childhood. They're not happy, they're undisciplined, and they're not a good member of society, right? So hardship can and often does play this role in the life of a Christian. It's actually one of the guarantees of belonging to God as one of his children, that he will discipline you. Listen to Hebrews 12. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Now it doesn't say or daughter there. Ladies, you have to deal with being sons of God. Guys, we have to sometimes deal deal with being the bride of Christ. So it is what it is. But being chastened by suffering, right? Being corrected by suffering draws those of us who believe into closer fellowship with God our Father. And yet at the same time, we have to make sure that we say this as well, even when suffering is, even when we know suffering is for our own good, it is hard to accept it. I do not like it. And so the tragic fall of Jerusalem leaves the prophet Jeremiah with more questions than answers. Listen to what he says in verse 13. What can I say for you? What can I compare you to? What can I compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? To what can I liken you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? Your wound is as deep as the sea. Who can heal you? That last line, that last of his questions, who can heal you? It, it kind of echoes, if you know Jeremiah's prophecies in his book, it echoes a line of complaint that he uh, makes in that book where he says in chapter eight, is there no balm in Gilead? Is there, is there no comfort, God? Like, is there nowhere I can turn to get comfort? Maybe you've felt that before. Now, there was only one who could possibly answer the prophet's cry for help, and that's God himself, right? Even Jeremiah was unsure how the city, how, what's gonna, how is this ever going to be right? And the one thing, the only thing that he could do 
was to pray, begging for God's grace, even in the middle of his justice, right? Man, and I, I, I can remember doing this as a kid with my parents who thank God disciplined me, right? In the middle of my punishment being like, please don't do this. And I can remember, I'm not, I can't believe I'm saying this now as a parent, but my dad saying this hurts me more than it hurts you. And you don't believe it as a kid, but I get it now. And so the prophet invites others to join him. This is from Lamentations 2 and a little bit from Jeremiah 9. He says, the hearts of the people cry out to the Lord. O wall of the daughter of Zion, let your tears flow like a river day and night. Give yourself no relief. Give your eyes no rest. Arise, cry out in the night as the watches of the night begin. Pour out your heart like water in the presence of the Lord. Lift up your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint from hunger at the head of every street. And so then Jeremiah turns his suffering into intercession which is really kind of the movement of the book of Lamentations. Uh, There's a commentator who calls the prayer at the end of the second lament a, quote, desperate recounting of utmost woe. And so it's the prayer of somebody suffering a crisis of faith because they've experienced or witnessed unspeakable pain. These are the words of someone who does not have answers, who only has questions. And I know there are some of us in this room who are asking these questions. Listen to verses 20 through 22. Look, O Lord, and consider, whom have you ever treated like this? Have you ever prayed like that? God, why are you treating me like this? Have you treated anybody else like this? Should women eat their offspring, the children they have cared for? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? Young and old lie together in the dust of the streets. My young men and maidens have fallen by the sword. You have slain them in the day of your anger. You have slaughtered them without pity. I mean, I've never prayed this hard before. This is anger towards God. And this is inspired scripture, right? For us to to read. He goes on, as you summon to a feast day, so you summoned against me terrors on every side. And the day of the Lord's anger, no one escaped or survived. Those I cared for and reared, my enemy has destroyed. Everybody that I've ever loved is gone, Lord, and you did this. How could you do this to me? That's what he's praying. Now, this is not the normal place for a Sunday morning sermon to end, but this is where the text ends. This second lament ends with really horrifying stuff being spoken about. Cannibalism, sacrilege, unburied corpses mounded up in the street. That's what's happening here. And all of this is the terrifying result of divine wrath. Jeremiah like hardly knows what to say. He doesn't know how to pray. So all he can do is just bring this stuff to God. And some of us in this room make the mistake. I would say all of us make it from time to time, but maybe some of us are in a season right now where it's very tempting to make the mistake of thinking that we have to get past our grief. We have to get over our anguish and come to God with our neat little cleaned up prayers before we're allowed to pray. And this text, this inspired word of God for you is showing you that no, you do not. That is not true. 
Bring your anger-filled, question-filled, anguish-filled questions to God. Even if you know they might not be an answer, bring them to him anyway. As we read, don't give your eyes a break from crying in order to come to him. Just come to him with your ugly cries and your hard questions. I want to just close with a prayer, a written prayer uh, from, this is a book of um, litanies for congregational prayer, and this one is called Litany for Lament. I'm just going to read this to us as our closing prayer, and then we will um, be done with this part of our service, and we will take the Lord's Supper together in a little bit. This is what it says, and if this is you today, I hope this gives you words to pray. God, our hearts are weary Broken and sad, grief follows us. Pain is our companion on the road. The sins of our past have revisited us. They were just beneath the surface, covered in a coat of whitewash. We are newly aware of our complicity. We mourn our blindness. We regret our apathy. We weep at the state of our world, and we wish we had done things differently. We grieve the wrongs done by us and by others. Lord, we open our hearts before you. We are vulnerable and at your mercy. Let your will be done to us. Refine us in your fire. We purpose ourselves now to walk steadfastly and humbly through the chafing grief and the ache of suffering out to where the mercy falls. Amen.